And we're live! Greetings and salutations. Alright, everybody. Well, I'm glad you could make it. We survived episode one. We survived and... all the feedback you have given us. And we're gonna... We promise to improve. Oh, uh, yeah. We'll make sure that uh, the audio will be completely distorted. Uh, yeah. The dialogue will be completely um, in unintelligible. Yeah, exactly. We're just gonna start from the... We're just gonna start Nazbolism from the time before Christ was born. Exactly. We're, As in, like normal chronology, we're just gonna eyeball it. <laughs> yeah, we're, what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna start at the beginning, then um, go to a first person perspective in the exactly. middle, and then we're going to um, you know have a meandering um, uh, monologue um, of somebody within this timeline, but it's it's not exactly clear. And then we go straight to the end, and then we go back into a circle. Like so, Sansara. they're basically going to use this as an example for gibberish. Exactly. So, hello everybody. Welcome to episode two of Ideological Obscura. We're going to be doing part two of National Bolshevism, and where we left off last time, we left off at the beginning of a something wonderful and great. Yeah, World um, War Two. Right? Yeah, fun for the whole family. Exactly, um, especially Germany and yeah, the Soviet exactly. Union, yeah, what, our main characters. So what hap So tell me, Aaron, what, what happened after World War II? Well, there were two wolves, right? There were there are two wolves inside of you. Yes, yes. <laughs> national socialism and just socialism. Exactly. Yeah, and those those wolves had a surgery, and now they're changed yes. for the worse. So as we, as many of you may know, the world was divided into two um, sides. One um, with the capitalist West, um, with NATO and and led by the United States, yeah. um, and then you had the uh, the East with the the communist East with uh, the, the East. Soviet Union um, and the Warsaw Pact, and you know I mean that's just brief. That's only for Europe. That does include Asia because you also had like you know China and all. But that I mean they were aligned stuff. countries, and like if they weren't aligned, then the both sides made them aligned yeah. in terms of civil wars and coups. Yeah. And just yeah, overall they had a good time. If you didn't become aligned, you would be made aligned. Exactly. Just ask the CIA. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is the world that we are, that we are now in. Um, one that is based on capitalism versus communism. Soviet-style communism, to be exact. And there was no real third way. And that was something that, you know, many people would look to. I mean, you would see, like, you know, syncretic leaders and, like, in, like, the non-aligned movement that would try to seek out a third way. Yeah, there way. was a non-aligned movement, but they didn't gain much traction, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, big countries like Egypt and Indonesia were a part of it. Yeah. But, I mean, they weren't that much influential because no, of, weren't. like, the other two sides trying to kill each other. Yeah, definitely. And... So you didn't. So in Europe, you really didn't have uh, generally a third way um, that fascism was back during you know um, World War Two. Many people try to change that, and particularly the far right, which had been completely, completely destroyed, really during denazification, which like you know, which which resulted in a lot of Nazi officials being kicked out of their positions, and some of them being executed yeah but some still retain their position but we're not going to talk about those yeah. people we're not going to talk about uh mr uh, uh von brown <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so because of this you know massive change the post-war far right you know went under some ideological shifts um particularly one that was very striking was one that was you know created by the nazis actually and that was the idea of pan Euro of european nationalism and this started off in the 19 in 1942 
with the Nazis using the idea of a new Europe. This was more of like a psychological operation strategy in order to make Europeans uh, believe that the Nazis were protecting them from a scourge of capitalism and communism, and that they would make a, uh, a unified national socialist Europe that would not be inspired by pan-Germanism or have German economic superiority over them. Exactly. And yeah. they got close. Yeah. <laughs> but then they invaded Russia. <laughs> well, I mean, it was likely that they would have never actually had... Um, that, that it would have never actually been like an equal relationship. You would have had client states like, you know, Vichy, France, in which, you know, people would be sent off to like work as like uh, guest, not guest workers, but like, you know, practically slave labor in yeah. a way. Um, and like there would also be a lot of political prisoners that would be sent to camps like Dachau for slave labor as well. Exactly. Um, but also the idea was is that, you know, Germany would defend uh, Europe from communism. Um, and this was embodied by like, you know, non-German, um, SS volunteers or other non-German army, army units, um, fighting against, uh, the Soviets on the Eastern front, like, you know, Romanians, Romanians, Hungarians, Italians, Slovakians, all those, Slovakians. Yeah. um, noticeably they, they were, yeah, they were, they did really good job fighting the Soviets, yeah, especially, <laughs> especially Stalingrad, yeah, you know, exactly. that, that, that very important battle that decided everything. Oh man. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, Shout out to our Romanian audiences. We love you. We, yeah, our, our yeah our uh, our one Romanian listener. This is for you. We yeah. love you. <laughs> um, this pan-European nationalism or pan-white nationalism would become the core value of actually contemporary far right and neo-fascism, particularly in the in the uh, information age. And this was adopted by like you know French nationalists who rejected Pétain's idea of a, of only French nationalism and sought to like you know work with other whites um, across Europe. And in some ways, this was actually complemented with another um, ideological idea um, that was developed by well-known American fascist Francis Parker Yockey, who argued that the for unity of the white world, instead white nationalists and neo-Nazis should, you know, unite with the Soviet Union to overthrow the uh, the Jewish-Israeli yoke uh, that the West lived under. Um, however, this was not widely accepted. So, as in, like the Amer- so, so the American ideology like the american fascism ideology was a broader ideology than like the european one um i think it was just for yaki i'm not sure about the rest of the american okay let's 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 talk about yaki so like his goal was to unite the entire white world yes against the jewish israeli yoke yes but like the french way of thinking was just uniting the entirety of europe rather than the entirety of the white world I think, yeah, because, you know, they were mainly focused on Eurocentrism. Uh, Yaki had this idea of a, you know, imperium um, in which, like, you know, you would have a great Western empire um, of of a unified white race and everything. And it's interesting that he, you know, sought to unite with the USSR despite despite them being the ones that destroy the Nazis, which is, you know, a very interesting thing to think about. Um, But one, so, but this idea of, uh, you know, Working with the Soviet Union was not widely accepted in, like, you know, either in the West, um, in, in, I mean, in America or in Europe, except for a couple people. And one of those guys is going to be our main character that we're going to follow because he was responsible for the creation of Belgian national uh, Bolshevism. Yes. We, I know. We moved from <laughs> Germany to Belgium. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we talk about Belgium being independent, and this is what happens. I mean, exactly. <laughs> Our guy that we're going to follow is a guy named Jean-Francois Thierryalt, um, who was born in Brussels in 1922. 
grew up in a left-wing family and was involved in socialist and anti-fascist movements. However, his politics shift to the, uh, switched to the far right and became part of a collaborationist um, grouping. That's a wild swing with the pendulum. That, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, following Nazi, Nazi Germany's occupation of Belgium in 1940, he would, he would eventually associate himself with the Les Amis du Grand uh, Reich uh, Allemand, or uh, Friends of, of the Greater German Reich, uh, which was a syncretic mix of a dissident socialist, Rexist, which are Belgian uh, pro-monarchy, pro-monarchy fascists. So as a, rather than a feudal, they wanted the king to be like the... The main guy, The yeah. main guy. Yeah, exactly. He himself would later join the Waffen-SS, and the Waffen SS is the military arm of the SS in exactly. Germany, which committed all the war crimes against yeah. all the minorities in Europe. Basically. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just the SS. The Wehrmacht themselves were also complicit as well. Yeah. No, but, I mean, definitely. But definitely. still, like, people tend to see the SS as the black oh, sheep yeah. of all the war oh, crimes. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the SS were probably the more enthusiastic ones to do the war crimes. Exactly. And after the war, he was arrested, um, but was released and became an optometrist. I mean, again, that, again, again, a wild change in career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, I feel like fighting for the German army after the surrender wouldn't have been a good idea. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I guess you got to have a diverse uh, uh, resume. Portfolio, you know? yes. Yeah, I got to have a diverse resume. Um, I mean, that's what companies want. They want to see diversity. Uh, both in your skills and they want to see the violation of the Geneva Convention. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, but. You know, a couple of years later, he would return to politics in the 1960s in response to Belgium's decolonization and the uh, Congo crisis, in which he joined a group called the Mouvement d'Action Civique, uh, which sought to bring white colonists back home and oppose uh, decolonization. Um, so this was go- during a, an entire period in which, like, you know, part of the Cold War, which was, you know, the end of the empires of Europe, yeah. in which their African and Asian colonies, you know, would separate uh from their colonial masters sometimes even violently such as like you know with vietnam or congo in this case but i'm belgium only intervened in congo to like get uh belgian nationals out like the white people out of the country and also the uh, and also to maintain their access to uh you know key resources because like you know exactly congo is a very resource rich area they yeah have... but the people there don't have a lot of access to those resources no they don't yeah, exactly. but it's, so it's about um it's about maintaining that control on resources um, by any means possible, whether that be, you know, um, war, assassination, anything that you got to do. Stuff. All that stuff, really, yeah. So this was during a time period in which the empires of Europe were collapsing and, and you know, they, these new colonies would either choose um, a certain direction. Would they become more capitalist? Would they become socialist? Would they kind of seek their own path? Um, and this was something that was going on, uh, you know, in their colonies. And it was up to the West to make sure that they didn't go communist and that they stayed aligned with them. So with this op- opposition to decolonization and wanting to, you know, help their uh, fellow white man, um, he would develop contacts outside of Belgium to create a pan-European nationalist organization, Jeune Europe, or Young Europe in French, um, in 1962. This group mainly operated in France um, and was thus influenced by the change um, in thinking that we mentioned uh, previously about, yeah. you know, the rejection of Bataan's um, narrow reactionary nationalism and support of the Nazi idea of new Europe. Yeah, they wanted a new form of nationalism. Exactly. They wanted a more broader and more um, not really inclusive, I guess inclusive 
Um, I mean, I would say it's yeah. because it's same pan Europe, so I feel like that also includes Yugoslavia. Actually, yeah, you are right because they uh, they are inclusive because they have sympathy for Eastern Europeans who are part of uh, uh, an internal Russia, unspo- one an imagined idea of Russia that was unspoiled by materialism and the influence of the degenerate West. Which is quite a divergence from the Nazi view of things because they saw the Slavs as subhumans exactly. rather than like a part of the Aryan race even though they had uh, white skin color. Yeah. I don't think you can think that anymore because like you clearly saw that the Russians curb stomped the fucking Nazis. And yeah. if you think that, like, okay, maybe, you know, if I think it boils down to this. If you can't beat them, join them. But not all, not entirely. And this thinking was also combined with, like, you know, uh, Yaku's idea of, like, you know, working with communists in order to achieve their goals. So, what were their goals? And we're going to talk about that. Because in 1965, he would actually, Dialyalt would create a, uh, a political party called the Parti Communitaire European, or the PCE. Um, which was, which mainly, they considered the U.S. as their primary economic, political, and strategic enemy of Western Europe. And that the new collabos, which is French slang for Nazi collaborators, which is very ironic that he's using that term, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, were those that were undermining the European community by rechanneling the European project towards the formation of a plutocratic republic extending from Frankfurt to San Francisco. Um, I guess that is kind of a bit accurate of the European Union, I guess, today. Yeah, fair point. Though, like I it, it was a pan-European movement like the European yeah. Union, but not, the ideological lens is completely different. Yeah, it's, it's, complete, it's a lot, it's a mix of a red and brown, also known as my colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, they sought to have Europe become a, a third power in the Cold War, and were mainly focused um, in creating a global struggle against U.S. imperialism. Because, I mean, that was the other thing. During this time, for some context, that United States, um, in order to, you know, deter Soviet aggression um, and maintain their, you know, influence and power and trading partners, they created the, uh, the, the um, uh, what is it called? The, North Atlantic Treaty the, exactly, Organization. Exactly, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, um, which sought to, which was a military alliance um, of Western countries, including Turkey. Yeah. Um, and the United and with that, the United States would base um, uh, military troops in places like Germany, France, Turkey, Turkey. Because um, they they were at the frontier of the Soviet Union, exactly. So. And Germany as well, because like you mean, you had West Berlin, and you also had the rest of uh, Western Germany, exactly. West Germany, West Germany, yeah. Like West Germany and West Berlin. West Germany and West Berlin, yes, it's all West. Um, and. So they would deploy missiles and they would deploy uh, big units. And this pissed off a lot of like Europeans who saw like, you know, the Yankees coming in, taking over their country, um, particularly like, you know, leftists as well as like, you know, more nationalistic ones. Yeah, we had something on the lines of that in Turkey as well, because the U.S. troops visited Istanbul for a weekend off and they were, <laughs> and they were thrown into the Bosphorus by leftist students. No way. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, but you guys still have Izmir. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you may be asking, so how do you wage a global struggle against the U.S. Uh, imperialism um, as a, uh, what he calls a, na- he calls himself a national communitarian? Because he's not communist, to be very clear about that. He's very adamant about it. How do you achieve that? This goal of a national Euro- communitarian Europe. 
well, what he says is that national, uh, Western nationalists and Eastern communists should reach an understanding, and that they themselves must wage a guerrilla war, um, kind of like Mao, you know, he's very in about Mao. Mao Zedong, who is like the famous Chinese communist. Yes. Who basically had a civil war against the nationalists, and he won because he had genius tactics. Yeah. Like, they were brilliant. Brilliant guerrilla tactics uh, with, you know, like, shadow states, uh, bases, and stuff like that. The bases were, like, okay, to summarize it very simply, the Maoist guerrilla strategy was basically that they would conquer a certain amount of territory in different areas of the country, and the goal of these territories would be to unite to form, like, one state that can combat the, like, the opponent of the communist side. Um... He would try to do this by, you know, forging um, alliances um, in the East. For example, he would um, form contacts with the uh, Arab and Muslim world as well. Particularly, he would, like, you know, meet with Syrian Iraqi ambassadors and Palestinian Algerian leaders um, uh, to be interviewed on the PCE's uh, journal, uh, La Nation Européenne. And that journal uh, would be distributed in Algeria, and their publication would also feature featured advertising by the League of uh, Arab States and the PLO, which was the, uh, the left... Palestinian Liberation Organization. Yeah, the more left-wing, uh, uh, like, the more, like, leftist kind of, like, uh, you know, Palestinian nationalist. And the, re- and the reason why he wanted to get with these groups is, though, then he could then send uh, his supporters to go there and be trained uh, by these uh, independence fighters. Um, and then they would then uh, form the, the core of the Popular Liberation Army of, of Europe. And this would be combined with, the, you know, his attempt at what I would call a diplomacy as allegedly speaking to Zhao Enlai in Budapest. If you don't know, Zhao Enlai was the um, the foreign minister uh, for the People's Republic of China during like the 60s. And, I feel like uh, you're the only person that knows that. <laughs> yeah. No, but he allegedly spoke with him and asked him to commit to his grand strategy, which was a quadricontinental war. So what was this? quadricontinental uh warfare sorry quadricontinental guerrilla warfare that uh uh tiyalt was trying to get going with this arab nationalist trained army um of like european nationalists they would then be sent back to europe in order to wage a maoist style guerrilla war in order to free europe from american influence and also soviet uh liberate you know the soviet um uh, uh, i guess like you know it's their client states and then China would help by waging a conventional war on both parties. Imagine, like, going up to Zhao and Lai, and he's like, what the fuck is, are you talking about? Uh, he, he, he just has a PowerPoint presentation with, like, 80 slides. He's yeah, like, exactly. Okay, the tactic is Mexico. We made the U.S. that way. <laughs> Ever heard of the Zimmerman telegraph? <laughs> I was just imagine, but when when I first was researching it, I was just imagining him going up to Zhao and Lai, and Zhao was just like, "Ah, oh, fuck." And he's probably like, "Man, leave me the fuck alone." I have to deal with like a bunch of like Maoist French professors who've been asking me, "Can I wait? Can I wage a Maoist insurrection in Paris?" No, you can't, man. <laughs> no, you fucking can't. That's not the whole idea. Yeah, <laughs> I just I just imagined the guy pestering him for like three days in Budapest. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it's quite interesting because the guerrilla bands that went to Palestine, the, the Beka Valley in Lebanon and Palestine, they went because they were left-leaning, so they had to learn how to wage a guerrilla warfare, right? Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we're talking about Nazbos here right exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> so, like, so the PLO is very welcoming yeah. in terms of ideologies. And, and, I mean, and that's the crazy thing is that they'd be trying to wage a Maoist war. Now, if you got to understand what... Why Mal? Why we're laughing about like you know waging a Maoist style guerrilla war and like fucking like you know downtown Paris or Frankfurt Brussels. or Brussels? <laughs> Maoist. Okay, in Belgium it can't work because like I feel Not like really, there isn't a centralized police system. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like the Flemish and the Wallonians would fight each other more than they would fight each other. <laughs> They're just beating. One is beating. Uh, one is being one side with like uh, what is it called the uh, uh, squat baffles, exactly. and the other one is being them with like um uh, and with with a French fries. Exactly. <laughs> Even though those are also Flemish, but yeah. yes, I mean, oh no, I was gonna say waffles. Yeah, like uh, yeah, waffles. <laughs> so why it's funny is because that Maoism is mainly for like you know a peasant revolution. It's about instead of like a communist revolution, which is based on around like the industrial worker. Maoism is based on, you know, a peasant revolution yeah. because China, as we said in the first episode, um, is a very peasant-based society. Yeah, exactly. There and, aren't a lot of factories. They weren't a lot of factories in China. No, they weren't. And you would then have, um, and then you could also be in the countryside. Yen, you would wage a war because you know you would have, you'd be a lot more distant uh, from like you know the cities and the interior, and then you would encircle those cities. But I mean, those toxic tactics only work in countries where, like, it's such a strong centralized state. Yeah, like, for exactly. Like, if it's say, like Turkey or France, or then you're Germany. Not, yeah, or Germany, then you're not gonna have a easy time just conquering all the regions. No, you can't go to like a like a little hamlet in like the middle of like Bavaria and then like you know try to uh, establish like a Maoist base there you're gonna get the police are gonna be knocking on your door in like a, in like a couple days also i mean just the army itself exactly because uh, for example isis the islamic state also used these tactics in iraq and syria but syria was in the middle of a civil war so of course it was yeah. gonna work there and, and iraq, iraq basically had no government iraq is a fa- was a failed state i mean yeah it maybe still is but that's up to debate yeah but it's porous yeah, exactly. It doesn't have any centralized command. Exactly. So the idea, and I mean, this is something that like other leftists try to do, is that they tried to wage like an urban mouse uh, war, like, you know, the Bader Meinhof gang. Or the Red Army faction. Or the Red, or, yeah, the Red Army faction. Um, but that, they were the Red Army faction. Okay. Yeah, and also I think you had some Italians that were fighting um, in Italy during the years of lead, which was awesome in the 60s. I mean, the 60s were a crazy time of like, you know, left-wing terrorism. Yeah, I like the pr- protesting also, like yeah. 1968. Oh, yeah, iconic. 1968, iconic. If you're French, you know what I'm talking about. Exactly, or um, Turkish. Yeah. <laughs> or just European in general, man. Exactly. Um, yeah, so it's kind of crazy that they would try to do this. Um, but also, like, working with the Arabs as well. There, Because, you know, Tyriot himself was against uh, decolonization, which is crazy to think. Because, like, you know, Algeria was a former French colony. Morocco, um, Syria was a part of France, which is still True, very yeah. surprising. Yeah, like, exactly. Whenever I hear that, I just get surprised. But again, that, I'm going off in tangents. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Let's continue. <laughs> By 1969, Diarialt would um, have a political hiatus for 14 years. 
Um, don't know. I maybe he, he got he was, he was in hibernation. Yeah, he was in hibernation. Maybe he got back into optometry. Maybe he settled down with a girl. He was he was a Nazbol sleeper agent. A <laughs> Nazbol sleeper agent. Um, yeah, but you return back in the 1980s and become more Nazbol than ever. Because since the late 60s, he was actually exposed to the ideas of, uh, wait for it, and Sneakish! Yeah, the main character of the first part is back, baby. Yeah, exactly. He's back, and I think I think he's dead by now. He's back with a vengeance. Yeah. But so, by the 1980s, we're jumping forward in time. Uh, his thinking had fundamentally changed in regards to his geopolitical strategy. Did it make more sense? No. Uh, in order to counter the U.S., Diyayat in- invited Europe to rethink its relationship with the USSR, contending that European culture could con- only continue to exist with the help of the Soviet Union. As a, um, uh, quote, <clears throat> I'm gonna, this is a bit, this is a big one. The Weltschauung, which is German for worldview, of the homo novus might possibly emerge from communism, but not from the brick a brack uh, of American metaphysics. Whatever the hell that means. Uh, <laughs> brick a brack. I don't know. English is a very flexible language. I, I didn't know. I don't even understand what any of this means. Yeah, neither do I. Uh, and that the PCE's rhetoric, rhetoric also changed, um, uh, with them ending with the denunciation of the quote Mongolian hordes crouched behind an Asian Bolshevism. But instead, recognize the USSR um, as you know having some pan-Slavic leanings and as ethnically European character. Wow, the Russians are European. I could have never guessed. So, with the rejection of the of the belief that Russia was intrinsically Asian um, as a uh, as only a Nazi misconception, um, it was outlined in theoretical texts of the PCE um, and and of Stelyalt himself. Um, and he himself would become a staunch supporter of Russia um, for the rest of his life. So, and if you thought this ideological shift made them less racist, you'd be wrong. <laughs> they still believe that the... Uh, there is a real... Okay, let me read yeah, that. Yeah, you're going to read that. <laughs> because it's, again, it's deeply associated with the ethnic group I belong to. Yes. There is a real will to make the USSR collapse among Jewish American and Zionist American political leaders. So yeah. basically the five families that ruled the world according to the conspiracy theorists. Yes. <laughs> so thus with this shift he believed that, you know, maybe the U Soviet Union and Europe needed was an alliance and that Europe um would eventually actually unify to create one nation. Not a European Union, mind you, but to create a Euro Soviet Empire. Which would, you know, begin from Dublin to Vladivostok. Okay, and you may ask, why? Why on earth would you want to do that? I feel like they had that question in their minds ever since the episode began. Exactly. Like, why on earth are you? Is is this guy doing why this? Do, why does this exist? Yeah, exactly. Why is the this ideology, exist? not the podcast? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think both. <laughs> <laughs> um, the main goal was to be able to kick out American influence of from Europe, you know, close all the bases, but also do imperialism. If you thought he'd grown out of his initial phase of uh, white, uh, of uh, supporting settler colonialism and colonialism and imperialism, but you Thomas, would also be wrong. But Thomas, how dare you say that imperialism is only a capitalist thing? 
Oh. The Soviet Union never engaged in imperialism or socialist. Oh, I, you, you, yo, my, 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 my little summer child, you were very <laughs> wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just look at the invasion of Poland. <laughs> oh, I was going to say Afghanistan, because that's what was going on at this time in the 80s. Oof. Wild. Yeah. That was their biggest mistake. Oh, yeah, Their definitely. own Vietnam. Never go into, I mean, this is one thing that we've got to learn. Um is that never invade Afghanistan. Never start a, a, a land war in Asia. <laughs> you f- they fell for the one of the biggest blunders in Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> and never deal with a Sicilian when death is on the line! <laughs> All right. See, this is, our broad- this is us broadening our audience yeah, exactly. base. Exactly, I mean... Who does it? I mean, this is family-friendly content. Princess exactly. Bride. I am Inigo Montoya, who killed my father. Prepare, Prepare to, to die. die. <laughs> so, initially, with the alliance parties at the USSR, would recognize uh, that Africa and Middle East were part of Europe's sphere of influence. But you know, with the unification of a of a Euro-Soviet empire, they could then recolonize Africa. And basically, the goal was. Um, in order to exploit the natural resources of the African continent and to ensure white supremacy in it. Damn. This was part of his, like, your African theories that developed in the 1950s and 60s, in which, like, you know, Europe would have direct control. I guess it's, like, Europe would have direct control over Africa, and that, I guess, in some, like, weird kind of, like, timeline, Africa would still be part of, like, you know, European nations in a way. Um, like you so, know, like, like Algeria. Yeah, like let's say like Algeria was like a was like part of France, but also was integrated within the the European Union. Like, that sounds crazy, man. Like France is like you know uh like uh like France's um foreign departments. Yeah, as um, in Algeria. You know, in case of Algeria, it was called a department. Yeah, but but I mean, I'm talking about the current ones they have like Guadeloupe or stuff. Oh like that. yeah, okay. Um, so oh, yeah. yeah, so like no, like Africa would be directly integrated into like Europe as like a. Pull both politically, economically, maybe even culturally, with all that imperialism. I mean, economically, that's the case right now. But I mean, yeah. not for the, but not, but not in a good way. <laughs> not in a good way, no, no. So, but in the eighties, uh, the PC had actually died out. I guess you know when you're um, trying to you know do uh, what's it called? You're trying to have you're trying to be a national Bolshevik in Brussels. It doesn't really work. Um, I mean, being a national Bolshevik doesn't work. Period. But yeah, not really. But then it would be replaced by another party called the Parti Communautaire National European, or the PCN, uh, which was created by uh, Thierry's protege, uh, Luc Michel. Um, and also, who's still active. Who's still alive. And, roam- and roaming the plains of Europe. Yeah, not well, not not just Europe as well. We're gonna get we're gonna talk to him about him later. He's he's an interesting character. He he looks like a pedophile. I mean that that was already a given. Like, hold on, let me show you a picture of him. Like, look at this guy. Yeah, he does look like a pedophile. The Romania journal. But like, not the not the not the kind of like you know uh like you know uh big corporate pedophiles that you would see on Epstein's island. No, he's like, just like the village pedophile. Yeah, like. Yeah, and also he has certain interests. Oh my god, he has a fedora! <laughs> That's you, you, great! You, you heard it, you've, you've heard it the first time here, folks. He is a Redditor. He's a Redditor. He's a neckbeard. Well, he's not even a neckbeard. He's just a, he's a Redditor. Oh my god. Oh my god. That is insane. Yeah, oh I know, god. right? 
So the the PCN claim to be the successor of the PCE. I mean, they have kind of the same logo, um, and they look their their names are very similar, don't they? Yeah, it's basically the Judean People's Front or the People's oh, Front of God Judea. <laughs> Splitter. <laughs> well, it's not Splitter because he still like used still used uh, Tiriat's idea, um, and like Tiriat would like you know give his uh, indirect approval of it. So, and during the eighties, uh, Tiriat would actually begin working with a Spanish a Spaniard named uh, uh, Jose uh, Caldrado Costa. Um, with them both arguing um, that only Russia could serve as the cornerstone of a greater Europe. And it was at this time, uh, Tiliab began working on his never-completed book called The Geopolitics of the Euro-Soviet Empire. These guys, not only did he come up with an insane um, geopolitical strategy, he also came up with their own potential (laughs) internal political system, which was a totalitarian political system that was it gets even more ridiculous this guy had a lot of free time he did this totalitarian political system uh which would be a form of hyper communism purged of marxism hyper communism so we're purging communism from his founding father i guess it's i guess he didn't like the uh all the different theories of like marxism um, and, you know, like, work control of stuff, and then that the state should control it. Yeah, I feel like he didn't like the marks in the areas where he made sense. Yeah, no, he didn't. He liked it when it was perverted and, like, contorted by, like, you know, mustache man. Exactly. Mustache man good, beard man bad. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that was the whole idea. You would create the hyper-communism in this Euro-Soviet empire, a great uh, a national communitarian empire uh, stretching from a white nationalist one that'd be stretching from Dublin to Vladivostok and would recolonize African continent um, and which would, you know, enrich them. Yeah. When he was not calling for neo imperialism, he was also quoting Mao, Lenin, and Stalin, uh, saying that the new empire would be based on a communism without Marx, um, which uh, the new leader, um, the piece of uh, the PCN, uh, Luc Michel had compared to the uh, the new economic policy or the NEP, uh, which was for some context, the NEP was a, a policy that was introduced uh, by Lenin in the early days of the Soviet Union, which allowed for some free market capitalism, but under state regulation. Exactly. So I guess he's not exactly too. It's not like too horny about like the uh, the Stalinism of like uh, of le- that Ans Nikish was like. Yeah. And speaking of Ans Nikish. You'd be back in with uh, German, uh, German national revolutionaries with one group called the SDVNRAO. I'm not even going to try to say what the actual acronym is. I'm just going to call them the SDV. And their uh, journal, uh, Das Junge Volk, um, would begin republishing uh, the no no publishing the works of Nikish and Pytel. And this would really introduce like bring bring these guys back actually into the you know the rightosphere, I guess, mm. um, of uh, thinking about, like, the ideas of national Bolshevism. So the the far right in Europe that would be developing in the 1990s um, and the 80s, sorry, the 80s, um, sought to take the autarkic elements of Soviet-style communism while mixing it with the desire to have a homogenous racial empire of Europe. Um, and one of the, and this one woman um, that wrote one of the main sources, um, I think his name, I think it's like Dr. Lahul, 
Um, she's a fantastic go reader book. It's in this description. She said that national Bolshevism actually saved the French and Belgian far right since they were able to carve out their own niche uh, in their political landscape. However, we get to the year 1991. The Soviet Union was collapsed. And the Iron Curtain had already been broken down, and the Warsaw Pact had pretty much evaporated. Glasnost and Demokratizatia, the reforms uh, that, liberal, that liberalized, you know, media, information, the economy, uh, the political system. Also that was gave done. a lot of rights to Eastern European countries. Exactly, that was done by Gorbachev. Um, you know, failed to reform the Soviet Union and prevent its stagnation. Failed is a massive understatement. Yeah. Worst of all, McDonald's had already come to the USSR in 1990. And Gorbachev was in a Pizza Hut commercial. <laughs> yes, this is fact. This yeah, is no, fact. It, it's it go, you can you can find it on YouTube. It's it, it's amazing to watch. <laughs> um, the Cold War was seemingly over. And with the apparent victory of, the, of neoliberal capitalism and the beginning of the long night of the end of history. But the problem with ideas is that they don't die, they adapt, they continue, or, you know, they lay dormant in the minds of men. So, despite the end of the Soviet Union, national Bolshevism would continue. In fact, it was here that it evolved. Because in 1991, it was a thing called the European Liberation Front. Not to be confused with one now was created in the 1950s by the British fascist and the uh, American fascist uh, Francis Parkyaki, which was created under the influence of Thierryalt um, in a Russian ideologue named Alexander Dugin. Oof. That's, that's a spicy one, that one. Oh, D- Dugin comes up a lot. Oh, yeah. Dugin's going to come up a lot in like the future. Um, not just for national Bolshevism, but for other ideologies. Tyriot's ideas, uh, you know, of, of this, like, national communitarianism and combined with, you know, greater part of the larger... So, to clar- for, for clarification, national communitarianism is just a fancy way of saying uh, national Bolshevism, specifically to, like, what's Tyriot's insane crackpot ideas. And they're right. In his ideas um, that were you know, influenced by national Bolsheviks of, like, Anzenikish and Otto Paitel, will be popularized in Russia by Dugin in 1992. And that same year, uh, Tyriot would come to Moscow to actually meet the so-called national patriotic opposition. Because, you know, uh, it was during this time that actually people would, um, you know, still pine for the days of, of, the, of the Soviet Union, even yeah. if they were right-wing. Um, this is now something we'll be talking about in the third episode. However, Dialyab would die shortly after, uh, in 1992, dying at the age of 70. He lived a long and fulfilling life. Yes, as a uh, optometrist, Nazi collaborator, and, and a pseudo-intellectual. And a pseudo-intellectual. <laughs> the PCM would live on, though, with uh, Luc Michel seeking to build upon Dialyab's legacy. He would start um, in 1993 seeking to replace the ELF, the uh, European Liberation Front, with a new European-level trans-ideological organization, which called, um, which would be called the Black, Gr- uh, Red, Green Front. So I guess that involves black as in, you know, national communitarianism, far-right stuff yeah. as well. Red as in, like, you know, communist, um, Maoist, um, Stalinist. 
in green-like environmentalists. Like we said, that was the origin myth for the PCN. Um, you know, that was idea of, you know, Maoists, Nash national revolutionaries and environmentalists coming together in order to uh, oppose American imperialism. Um, and quote, this is from Larue's book, the first publication launched by the PCN after breaking with the ELF presented the reader with an editorial titer, title, quote, leader, accompanied by a photograph of the PCN leader, Luc Michel, standing under a portrait of Lenin. Michel would also declare, for national communism, or European National Bolshevism, which we prefer to call communalism, the Battle of Moscow was a landmark. From now on, European National Communism is no longer just an activist praxis, and some vanguard organizations like the National European Communitarian Party or Russian National Salvation Front is above all a community of activists, a reality of flesh and blood, sacrifice and hope, end quote. Yeah. So... The PCN had the idea that Russia could serve as an external base uh, for European nationalists. This was still building off the idea that they could still wage a guerrilla war in fucking Europe. <laughs> uh, similar to the ideas of Tiliaf. This alliance of, of both Russia and, and Europe, they hoped would create this idea of having a left-wing and Eastern aesthetic uh, for Western uh, radical, for the Western Europe's radical far right, which would, which was a good way to like, you know, um, it's like a brand change, or guess. Like they're rebranding themselves because having themselves branded um, with association of these and the aesthetics of fascist regimes doesn't vibe with a lot of people. Yeah, especially after World War Two, it doesn't, it doesn't. Sound like a good time. And this was still in the nineties, so you know this was a great year for like World War Two. This was a great decade for like World War Two movies. Yeah, exactly. You had like what was it? The, um, the wound was still open. Yeah, the wound was very much opened. Um. It, it's not like now, you know, where people would like, you know, blatantly like, you know, try to say, actually, you know what? Yes, let's do uh, let's do the Nazi Germany again. And they would yeah, idealize the Nazi aesthetic. Exactly. It was a good thing. Yeah, because that's what's going on now, which is very interesting to see that, you know, some people would uh, that no, no longer have this problem with the aesthetic of associating with fascist regimes. Um, I might be wrong on that, but I think this is what, what we can see based on what uh, Larue wrote. Um, so with that, um, they would try to, you know, paint themselves red and present themselves as like, you know, an, an a new al alternative, um, and especially, you know, with the end of history, I mean, this is something that is just like a big idea that we, you know, in our universe, in our major, we talk a lot about because like. In the first year, especially. Oh, yes, the end of history. Everyone's favorite book to talk about in our major. The end of history, if you don't know, was a was from a an article written by a guy named Francis Fukuyama that argued that hit that ideological development of uh, of humanity had end had reached its pinnacle, and this was in a way the end of history because you would no longer see the ideological developments in which neoliberal capitalism had succeeded and had triumphed over historical ideologies of fascism and communism. You would say that, you know, conflicts would, and that you, this would be the end of conflicts and stuff like that, and that only conflicts would occur with, like, you know, what he would call historical um, uh, countries. Historical, historical countries, so like autocratic countries that didn't have the rule of law as the dominance Exactly. So, like, you would still, like, see, like, the Gulf War was an example of a Fukuyami and, you know, kind of, like, 
calling because, yeah. getting rid of or the both Gulf Wars were like the you know getting rid of like all, all these historical states eventually you know um North Korea and all these autocracies yeah, that didn't it was based fall on the line. theory of the democratic peace theory where it basically entailed that if you're a democracy then you're not gonna go to war with other democracies yeah. you have other ways to like work your business out yeah exactly and this and the end of history was at a time when western domination was undisputed yeah. russia had completely fallen apart um china hadn't reached its level of a of international uh boogeyman uh, as it has now yeah. and no other country was either willing or capable of opposing uh the united states on the global uh stage but that's where i want to end the episode today with the end of uh, the cold war yes and the you know the creation of the pcn the development of national Bolshevism in Western Europe beyond Germany into the Francophone sphere, and also the beginning of national Bolshevism in Europe, because we will see that in the next episode with Alexander Dugin and a certain Eduard Limonov. Contemporary national Bolshevism, baby. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna be and I mean the PCN. We'll talk about it because it's still it's still going going on today. Yeah. Um. But yes, I I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to the podcast. We've honestly, we've loved um, your viewership. I mean, we're, this has really gotten us excited and everything. Yeah, also your feedback, which was very helpful. Yeah, no, I'll make sure that you guys can hear this and everything. And thank you, especially to our, our one Bulgarian listener um, and the entire population of Malta. Yeah, all two of them. Thank <laughs> all you two of much. them. <laughs> um, yeah, but thank you. And thank you for tuning in to... Yep. Episode uh, two, part two of National Bolshevism by Ideologica Obscura. And we'll see you in episode three. The final part. The final part. Bye-bye.